Welcome to the iConnect with Baxter Canada podcast. This is where we connect with healthcare providers from various clinical settings to learn more about how they are leading through innovation, protocol development, and integration of evidence to provide excellent clinical care to their patients. Join the conversation with your hosts from Medical Affairs at Baxter Canada. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of I Connect with Baxter Canada podcast. My name is Michelle DeGloria. I am a registered nurse and a medical science liaison supporting the medication delivery team at Baxter Canada, and I will be your host for this episode. As always, our goal is to bring you interesting and relevant topics that influence your day-to-day practice as a clinician. I'm excited to welcome Dan Landry from Moncton, New Brunswick. Thank you for listening. Today I'm joined by Dan Landry. Uh, Thank you, Dan, for joining me. I will turn it over to you for an introduction of your current role and your experience. All right. Yeah, well, thanks for inviting me. Uh, Yeah, my name is Dan Landry. I'm an infectious disease pharmacist and uh, I guess you could say antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist at the uh, Dr. Georges Dumont University Hospital Center in Moncton, New Brunswick. Um, So... I guess I wear all sorts of different hats in my job, but it's primarily revolving around antimicrobial stewardship. So half of my time is with uh, patient care priorities and half is more uh, clinical support roles and coordination of our antimicrobial stewardship program. Um, And with the pandemic, I've been quite busy with COVID and uh, I probably, we talked about this before the recording, but I I guess I'll mention it. I, I enjoyed answering all my friends and family's questions about COVID and realized I kind of liked science education. So I decided to start a website on the side to, I think, just explain healthcare topics in an easier to understand language. I find that as healthcare providers, we do a terrible job of that for the most part with so patients true. and for them to be a stakeholder in their own healthcare, they need to understand what's going on. And I think we do a disservice to patients by not explaining things properly. So th- that was the goal of my website. I mean, I'm not going to fix this problem by myself, but it f- makes me feel better to try, I guess. So uh, the website's ourexplanation.com. And uh, I mean, healthcare providers not, might not get much out of it, but I've had some colleagues tell me that it actually gave them ideas for how to explain certain things to patients. So Very they might cool. take my ridiculous analogies and put them to good use. Excellent. So I will let everyone know that we will link the website in the show notes. So I encourage everyone to go and have a look and share it with your friends and family. So for today, I'd like to talk about the use of elastomerics for continuous infusion of antimicrobials. And I know this is sort of a a hot topic. Um, One thing that was very interesting to me our previous general manager actually came to us from Australia and the practice in Australia is to administer the majority of antibiotics, antimicrobials uh, by a continuous infusion. Um, He estimated that they were seeing probably close to 90, if not 95% of all prescribed antimicrobials outside of the hospital setting administered continuously. And we said, wow, Um, it's actually probably the exact opposite here in Canada. We are giving the majority of of those medications intermittently. 
And yeah. when, I, when I first met you, I had the opportunity to learn more about an innovative program that was started at George Dumont. And I was hoping that you would be able to share a little more information about that. So if, if we could start with, you know, A, how are elastomerics used in your organization for this particular application of continuous antibiotic therapy? Sure. So uh, I guess I'll probably just rewind. Um, this was before my time at the hospital, but uh, there was a massive shortage of probenicid in Canada. You, you just couldn't get it. And I think when it comes to ambulatory uh, treatment of cellulitis, skin infections with IV cefazolin, which is a first generation cephalosporin, the standard of care, I guess, um, there was a way to do it where you gave one dose IV with oral probenicid and old as dirt gout medication that nobody uses anymore, but it has an interesting side effect that it prevents your body from getting rid of cephalosporins and penicillins adequately. So instead of needing it three times a day, you just give it once a day with this. The problem is, is it, you couldn't get it. It was unavailable. So, mm. you know, all around the country, people are trying to decide what are we going to do? Most people just decided to say, okay, we'll find a cephalosporin that's once a day ceftriaxone and we'll just give that. At our site, the problem was, is they said, okay, that's great, but we're probably going to drive up resistance to third generation cephalosporins. Mm -hmm. We're probably going to cause more C. diff. They didn't like that idea. It was potentially less effective against one of the pathogens that causes cellulitis. So they said, okay, how can we give cefazolin a different way? They looked at using extramural IV pumps, but that was a no-go. We don't have enough of them. We can't admit people for it. So that's how we landed on continuous infusion with elastomerics. Um, I'm not going to go into crazy detail here, but um, cefazolin, other cephalosporins, and anything in that general family works best when your body has a stable amount of the drug that can kill the bacteria. So when you give it in a continuous infusion, you're essentially always keeping it above that Goldilocks zone, I guess, uh, where it's just right. You, you don't have way too much. You don't have not enough. So you have enough of it to kill the bacteria. And if you can maintain that concentration in a stable way, it's thought that you're going to optimize bacterial kill. So essentially what they did is at the time, there was pretty much no hard clinical data to show this was a thing. Right. Um, now there is data showing that even in you know very sick people, um, giving these things by prolonged or continuous infusion might actually uh, uh, be more effective. But at the time, we didn't have it. So um, they developed a protocol where we would use an elastomeric infuser. The patient would, be, would come into the eMERGE uh, department. They'd be evaluated to see if they meet criteria for ambulatory treatment. They'd give them a single dose of cefazolin, which is basically to fill the tank. Mm -hmm. um, because if we don't give that and we just start the continuous infusion, it would be like trying to fill a bathtub with a dropper. Like eventually mm -hmm. you'll get there. It's going to take a while. So you, you give the loading dose and then you hook them up to these infusers. They got nicknamed baby bottles because uh, they look like old school baby bottles. Right. And um, they'd get this nice, fancy, uh, stylish uh, fanny pack. And with that, they could just go home and they could be getting continuous antibiotics without thinking about it. You know, you're not attached to a pump that's beeping at you all day. Um, 
and yeah, and then they just come back and we change the infuser every day. So they don't have to come in three times a day. It, it was just the best solution for the problem. And it was very well received by our physicians at Emerge. And well, we're still doing it to this day. Interesting. So patients, and I guess another benefit to your point um, earlier, you mentioned, you know, you had explored various options to consider what could be used. And one of the options was an ambulatory infusion pump. And you quickly realized you just, the, the resources weren't there to support that. Yeah. Obviously admitting a patient, um, we know even uh, likely in 2011, hospital resources have been stretched and taking up a bed for something, I don't want to say simple, but maybe not as complex as the other guy sitting in a merge waiting to be admitted um, also isn't ideal. So I think the option of being able to take something very simplistic, uh, non-electronic, send a patient home with it, and deliver the therapy that's needed to improve what they presented with, which in this case was cellulitis, sounds like a win for everyone. Yeah, and at, at the end of the day, that it, that's how we saw it. Um, and then we uh, decided a few years back, uh, it feels like a lifetime ago, <laughs> but uh, we... we uh, did a study retrospectively looking, you know, before and after doing this, and we compared, you know, cefazolin probenicid against continuous cefazolin infusion. And what we found was there was there was no statistical significance di- uh, difference between the two. It was shown to be just as good. Um, there was a trend that it was more effective. However, we didn't have near enough patients to evaluate something like that. You need much larger numbers. We just didn't have that. Yeah. Um, but anecdotally, our, our physicians are all of the opinion that they seem to do better with these. Um, and with um, the continuous infusion, like you said, it, it just made it a lot easier at a time that probenicid wasn't available. And probenicid is not right for everyone either, so there's also that. Um, and what we found is that with the elastomerics, as we've gotten more comfortable with them, we've been able to... Um, teach patients how to change it themselves. Oh, amazing. So now we have now we have a clinic that's actually run by our ID specialists at our site where the um, people from Emerge get started on an infuser, they get sent home, and then they come back and see a specialist. And, I mean, most of the time we're switching them to oral medications. So I think if we're going to talk about amicobial stewardship mm-hmm. and, and proper care, Yes, like uh, uh, IV infusions, IV therapies, it's great to optimize it. But at the end of the day, for plain cellulitis, a lot of people over-treat with IV. We give way too long treatment durations. So with our clinic, if they do need to continue with IV meds, we continue the IV infusers. And if they don't, we just rapidly switch them to oral medications. So our process has evolved but stayed the same at the same time, I guess. Very cool. And I would think... Um, to your point about promoting antimicrobial stewardship, having that ongoing assessment uh, versus, you know, here's your seven days of antibiotics, you know, hopefully in seven days you're good. If you're not, come back and see me. Also provides sort of that um, comfort, I would think, and reassurance as a patient that you are likely feeling quite satisfied with your care and that you are being followed and and monitored appropriately. 
Yeah, our, our, we've done patient satisfaction surveys. We had a student last summer uh, do some with our patients, and the, the, res, the responses were overwhelmingly pos- positive. We were actually blown away by how positive they were. Uh, usually nobody has anything good to say about coming to the hospital, but uh, these people really appreciated the fact that they had a similar person following up. Uh, it wasn't in a chaotic emergency room, and it allowed them to get the care they needed, but not be here. Right. Um, so overwhelmingly good good feedback, and like you said, the, the really the management was improved because, uh, let's be honest, if, if there's a physician in Emerge, they don't work seven days a week, mm-hmm. 365 days a year. So often what would happen is physician X prescribes it, then the next day is physician Y. They say, well, I didn't see it yesterday. Physician X is in, here in two more days, so I'll give you two more days and you can see him then. Right. Where it might have been significantly better and we could have switched them to oral the same day. Right. So I, I think that's a, a really big selling point for our clinic and it's, it's really been very well received so far. Amazing. Now, I'm very curious on one earlier point that you made about the use of continuous infusion actually also benefiting uh, potentially some patients in acute care. And I'm just wondering if you want to expand on that at all. Yeah, sure. So with continuous infusion of, uh, and it's not for every kind of antibiotic, there's some antibiotics that they're optimally killing bacteria if you get a really big peak mm-hmm. of it, so like a crazy high amount. Some of them are more effective if you prolong the amount of time it's in that Goldilocks zone. Well, penicillins, cephalosporins, carbapenems, all the beta-lactam family of antibiotics, um, they are often recommended. It's mostly in um, ICU patients, mm-hmm. but we've also used it for very resistant bacteria where you really need to make sure they're getting the right amount of drugs so you're not getting resistances popping up. Um, That's when we're using that because it actually will optimize um, how the antibiotic is working. And we do have studies showing that in really, really sick ICU patients that they do give patients a, a net benefit compared to just giving it, you know, every six hours or every eight hours. Um, so there are actually patient care benefits. We don't do it for all patients in the hospital, but for those select populations, uh, we will do it, yes. Would you say that as the evidence um, grows, uh, we all know that um, as you have new evidence, when you know better, you do better. Um, do you see this becoming more prevalent in Canadian settings, or do you think we're not, will we ever reach I, the Australian experience? I, I, don't know, I don't know if we will, and I mean, to be honest, it's not necessary for everybody. That's the other way to look at it, too. Right. I mean, um, yes, continuous infusions, prolonged infusions are great for the cases that I've mentioned, but if you can also give an anti- if if you also give an antibiotic intermittently, it also doesn't take up a line. It doesn't. Right. Uh, it, it's less complicated to give sometimes inpatient-wise. So, yeah, with time, I'm sure we'll use it more for specific uses. Mm-hmm. But I also I, I think it would be disingenuous for me to say that it's going to re- replace uh, plain old intermittent antibiotics because it works just fine for a lot of things. So. Yeah. I'm giving you kind of a politician's answer of yes and no at the same time, but uh, that's that's all I can say with any confidence, I guess. But um, really, at the end of the day, what we should be aiming for is to continuously improve what we're doing and to continuously evaluate what we're doing, because 
if you're not evaluating what you're doing, there's no way to improve what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. So we need to keep doing these studies uh, to see, you know, what's what's better, what's not better for the patient, what's better for the system, what's more cost effective. And in some cases, it, it might be continuous infusion. In other cases, it might not be. And I think that's just the way we need to approach well, pretty much any problem in healthcare. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And I think I like uh, the analogy of it's not one size fits all. And it really does need to be structured in an individualized way. And, and you know, as the evidence changes, practice needs to change. So I appreciate that um, yeah, it's an evolving yeah. process. Yeah, and I mean, there there's benefits and there's also not so great benefits with having a continuous IV. So if you have yeah. somebody that is, for example, in delirium, somebody that is, uh, I don't know, a dementia patient that might not understand what's going on, yes. they might pull out those IV lines. So it might not, maybe there you'd favor something else. But if you have, I'm thinking a case that we often discuss is a very healthy younger person who is rather large body weight, then you kind of pose the question of, okay, is the Faslin for Benicid even enough for that person? Right. That's where we really start favoring these continuous infusions. So I think it, it has to really be um, centered around the patient in front of you um, and not, like, like you said, not a cookie cutter approach. And I would think this would be an excellent opportunity to engage with your antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist the expert in helping make some of these clinical decisions. Yeah, yeah, I think that that would be a, a great spot for this and really any other kind of procedures surrounding um, antimicrobial use, especially if we're looking at uh, pre-printed order sets or standardizations of care, it would be a great person to get involved early. Um, but definitely it's a place where you could see a lot of use for someone like a stewardship pharmacist or nurse or physician. Uh, Dan, as we finish up, I'm wondering if there are any recommendations you would give to other healthcare organizations who may be considering uh, replicating perhaps the program that was started at George Dumont um, as they endeavor on this. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a few suggestions. The first one would be when you're evaluating any of these uh, uh, procedures, policies, programs, don't look at individual cost of one thing. You, look, you need to look at everything in the system. So, um, you know, what is the drug cost? Yes, that's important. But what is the monitoring cost? What is the staffing cost? Does your system have the ability to absorb the follow-up needs of that patient? So I think you need to look at the entire system as a whole. That's one thing that I'd say. Um, to um, our model of having an actual clinic or a regular person that's evaluating the patient on a regular basis, I think is a much, we, we've noticed when we compare our stats, this has been an internal quality improvement thing, but we noticed that the duration of IV therapy is actually even lower than it was before now that we're doing this um, regular follow-up with the normal team. So I think uh, really encompassing this kind of program with something like that would be very beneficial and I think would definitely improve care to patients, but also reduce the burden on our system because you're reducing the amount of IV treatments necessary. Right. Um, so I think those two things would be the main ones, but also just keep up to date with literature coming out because things change all the time and just keep up to date with everything as it changes and, and don't be 
against change just because it's change. Right. No, thank you. Um, Dan, I have to say this has been great recording this with you um, and hearing about your experience. And I hope that um, people check out your website, which again is uh, linked in the show notes below. And I want to say a huge thank you. All right. Well, thanks for inviting me. It was fun. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening to today's episode. To listen to more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe to ensure you always receive notification. Please reach out to us by email if you have any questions, comments, or feedback. We look forward to having you back with us next time. Thank you for joining us for the episode of I Connect with Baxter. All of the opinions and experiences expressed in this episode are those of the guest speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Baxter Canada. If there are other areas of interest you would like to see included on future podcasts, please email those to iconnect.baxter.com.